Hello and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. I'm joined on the podcast today by Alex Charters, one of the co-managers of the £4 billion Ruffer Total Return Fund. Ruffer's philosophy is all about protecting investors' money, but actually during the pandemic, the absolute performance of their flagship multi-asset fund has been very strong too. Much helped, I'll add, uh, by a short-lived but highly profitable allocation to Bitcoin, which surprised a lot of people. Alex, welcome. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Good to be here. Yeah, well, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Ruffer's investment philosophy is, is probably a bit different to most uh, other asset managers. Um, what, what is it in a nutshell? Uh, very simply, we want to protect and grow our investors' money in all market conditions, uh, whatever the weather. So we're not benchmarked. We're not trying to beat a stock market either on the upside or the downside. We just want to keep making positive long-term gains um, including during periods of acute market stress. Yeah, and to be clear, you, you invest in, in quite a lot of different asset classes to do that. Is that right? Absolutely right. So we're completely unconstrained. Um, the portfolio's got everything from inflation-protected bonds to equities of different flavors and uh, a derivatives book, um, all sorts of different currencies. You name it, we can do it if we need to in pursuit of those objectives. Okay, well, that sounds like a lot to keep you busy. Uh, perhaps a good a good window into how that works with people might be if I can take you back to that un- unprecedented, uh, you know, I say in quotation marks, period at the start of twenty twenty. Um, during the first quarter, as as pretty much everything else was was crashing, uh, the total re- return fund was down just zero point eight percent over three months, so essentially flat. Um, how, how did you manage such a resilient performance? Uh, In short, because we owned the right protections and um, Mm. those protections were uh, volatility calls, so VIX calls, puts on equity indices and short credit positions. Um, And the key thing about our asset allocation and our philosophy, Jeremy, is that we're never trying to time the market. We're always running with what we think is the right balance of assets for those various different scenarios And that means that we don't have to panic when the markets start selling. Hopefully, uh, in fact, we're in a strong position to redeploy capital we've preserved into assets when everything's on sale. So uh, wind back to Q1 next year. The airbags in the portfolio, those derivative-based protections had worked very well. And that put us in a strong position um, into the rest of the year. Now, the key thing is that conventional protective assets in recent years have become extremely expensive and we think themselves risky. And what you saw in the first quarter last year in the COVID crunch was that at one point equities, conventional bonds and gold were all falling at the same time. So if you had a conventionally balanced portfolio and the authorities hadn't ridden to the rescue uh, with their enormous waves of liquidity, um, you'd have been stuffed we think that's going to be more of a problem going forward. And that means the conventionally balanced portfolio model is probably broken from here or at least heavily impaired. OK. And to be to be clear what you're talking about with the conventionally balanced portfolio model, I mean, for a long time, a lot of people have been happy to say, OK, if you put 60 percent in equity, so shares and 40 percent in, in bonds, particularly government bonds, then that's going to protect you on, on the downside while giving some upside. Is that is that what you're talking about? Absolutely right. So the 60-40 uh, stock bond portfolio has had a sort of golden era. Not only have equities and bonds both been going up uh, over the long run as those 
um, tectonic forces of lower uh, interest rates, lower inflation, and lower volatility um, have lifted all asset classes, but stocks and bonds have also been negatively correlated over the last couple of decades. And that means that when the proverbial hits the fan uh, in the equity market, your bonds have given you an offset. Now, um, if you draw that correlation back 200 years, what you discover is that for the vast majority of that time, stocks and bonds are positively correlated. In other words, they uh, tend to go up and down um, together. And that would make building a conventionally balanced portfolio um, very difficult indeed. And you'd be left with the situation that you saw in September this year, for example, or uh, back to March last year, where stocks and bonds fall together and there aren't any conventional hiding places. Okay, so pe- so people have uh, have extrapolated too much from, from recent history without really looking at the, the longer history of markets then. Absolutely right. So effectively, the industry is set up to optimise portfolio structures for the correlations between major asset classes that have held over the last couple of decades. And uh, our point would be that there are very particular conditions in the last couple of decades that are unlikely to persist indefinitely. Uh, the most obvious of those is um, persistently low inflation um, and also very becalmed levels of volatility. And we think the world ahead looks more inflation-prone and more volatile. Okay. And um, something you've said in one of your, your earlier answers uh, anticipates one of the things I wanted to ask, which is about market timing. You know, when people hear about people um, taking out kind of protections uh, against falls in the market, I think it's quite natural to think, OK, they're making that but based on a call that the market will fall. Um, but, but you're saying that uh, Ruffer's philosophy isn't really about that. It's, it's not. A, it's, it, so in other words, you know, you're not you're not trying to time the market. In fact, you, you're running these protections more or less the whole time. Exactly right. We've been running uh, a book of derivative-based alternative protections for some years before uh, the COVID crunch. And the reason's pretty simple, that um, with yields so low, uh, historically, you knew that the chances of substantial capital upside uh, were limited anyway. Your running yield was low and in uh, many cases negative in real terms. And uh, more to the point, we worried about the possibility of uh, that stock bond correlation flipping positive if there were signs of um, more inflationary pressure. So we didn't know what the crisis would be. Uh, of course, we didn't see COVID coming, um, but we did know what the likely pathologies would be in portfolio terms. And that's why in a world where you're no longer paid to own protection, we think you have to pay to own it. And um, that, in our case, means um, using this derivatives book Okay, thank, thank, thanks, Alex. Um, we mentioned that uh, since since protecting against the coronavirus crash, effectively, you, you, you've continued to generate uh, strong returns since since March last year. Um, and one factor in that has definitely been this uh, this Bitcoin trade. Um, did did you expect people to be so surprised by by Ruffer buying Bitcoin? I don't think we were surprised at the surprise. Um, yeah, but. It's very much part of a continuum. Um, if you think about what we've just discussed, you know, the key thing is owning the right assets in the right balance. Uh, asset allocation is the key driver of our returns. And because we're unbenchmarked, we can own anything anywhere in the world to protect and grow in all weathers. And um, so, for example, if you go back to 2008, the key offset was really the yen. 
Um, if you go back to the COVID crunch, it was the VIX calls, the equity puts, um, the short credit positions. And um, those were the acute crises. But if you think about what the central rougher view is, and that's that we're moving deeper into a world of uh, financial repression, which is where the authorities keep the level of interest well below the level of inflation as a way to erode the colossal levels of debt, um, where we don't think there's any realistic chance of that being paid back in real terms. Um, what that means is that people's savings are being stolen by stealth, and you need to protect it. Uh, now, the main way we protect against it is using inflation-protected bonds, uh, conventional bonds with their um, obscenely low yields are going to be uh, killing fields, to borrow uh, Russell Napier's phrase in terms of um, preserving real value. Um, Inflation-linked bonds, however, we think are a 21st century version of gold. Uh, we also own gold bullion and gold mining equities um, to protect against that deeper financial repression. And what happened last year is that we could see a narrative building around uh, hard crypto assets. Mm. And um, so that, amongst many other factors, uh, led us to take an option-like position in Bitcoin, not least because it helped uh, protect the gold allocation where we could see some people shifting at the margin into uh, hard crypto assets. But we sold it back in April um, for a, a tidy turn, and we don't have any exposure at the moment. We do, however retain those crown jewels, the inflation-protected bonds, and the gold. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting just to get a, a little bit more, more insight. Um, we, I think wh when you and a, a couple of other colleagues were promoted to fund management roles in 2019, Rafa said it was testimony to a new generation of investors at the firm. And you might expect a, a new generation to bring, bring some of these new ideas. Um, well, you know, was it some of the younger fund managers at Rafa p pushing for Bitcoin? You know, did you have to explain to uh, people what on earth you were arguing for here? Well, we've been following cryptocurrencies um, mm. and crypto assets for many years. So this is something that has been circulating around uh, as an idea at the firm for a long period of time. It's certainly true that um, some of my immediate contemporaries uh, are, uh, were keen on the idea. And um, so I think overall, it's fair to say that um, it's very much in keeping with the spirit of um, free inquiry, go wherever the balance of um, risk and reward took us. And at the end of last year, that was Bitcoin. Okay. And you've said that you're, you're, you're staying on the, the sidelines for the time being when it comes to, to crypto. What, what, what would lure you back? Um, the risks around that space are evolving very quickly. Uh, you've seen, for example, what's going on in, uh, in China, which has played out. But one area that you have to be very careful of is the sort of tether um, on and off ramps into the crypto space. And um, that looks like quite a dangerous setup. So for the time being, we're um, sitting firmly on the sidelines. Never say never. Um, as I say, we can buy anything uh, we like and service those objectives. But the portfolio has a huge range of assets in it. Bitcoin was only ever a, uh, mm. a tiny part of the allocation. Yeah. And... Um, it's a ferocious competition um, to get that balance right. Um, so it, it's weighted that way, really. Yeah. And just to be clear what you mean by um, on and off ramps, you mean the potential for, you know, countries banning cryptocurrency or, or something like that, these sudden swings? 
the regulatory and political risk is part of it, but the okay. the way in which people access crypto assets using these um, these intermediary vehicles right. uh, is certainly an area of high risk. Okay, thanks, Alex. Um, let's talk about inflation a bit more. Um, We've seen really high, uh, well, I think for many unexpectedly high inflation readings in in uh, the UK, US, you know, almost everywhere in the world recently. Do you think people have been caught napping? Uh, the short answer is yes, they have. And you only have to look at um, Mr. Powell's testimony before the Senate Banking Committee recently, where he effectively said that uh, the transitory narrative on inflation was itself, ironically, uh, transitory. And the key point, of course, about uh, more persistent inflation, at least in the short term, is what it does to change central bank reaction functions. Because um, if inflation remains uh, at or near the levels it is at the moment or even goes up, uh, then central banks are really going to be tested. And um, if you think that we've um, had record high nosebleed valuation levels in markets on the back of these waves of stimulus, both from fiscal authorities and from central banks, then uh, you're looking at a, um, a different world when central banks going into tightening mode with very extended asset prices. So that's going to be a real test from that point of view. Now, beyond the, beyond the short-term central bank reaction function question, which is a key, key one for markets going into next year, uh, many more people now have seen and accepted that an economy... Uh, that they thought was basically going to be disinflationary forever, i.e. an extension of the world we've been in, particularly post-credit crunch, they've seen that the economy um, can be much more inflation-prone. So this has raised the specter of much more inflation danger in the minds of uh, many investors who had dismissed it. But it's interesting that still, um, further out uh, into the future inflation pricing and particularly interest rate expectations still suggest people expect uh, basically a reversion to the old regime. And that regime was uh, low inflation, low interest rates, low volatility um, and predictable central bank reaction function. And our position has been for years um, and is even more so after what we've seen uh, with COVID and the various accelerations that that drove um, that there's too much debt in the world. Um, the underlying economy is becoming much more inflation-prone. We're into a world of greater monetary fiscal cooperation uh, and supply-side shocks that are not uh, all positive. They're very often going to be negative. Uh, and that is going to create much more inflation danger over the long run. And the key thing is, Jeremy, that inflation doesn't need to be very materially higher than the levels we've seen in the post-credit crunch world to have really profound implications for asset markets. Um, I've already talked about central bank reaction function and how that could flip correlations between stocks and bonds positive, for example. If you look back over history, um, you only have to have about 2.5% uh, core inflation in America over a period of about three years to flip that stock-bond correlation positive. Okay. And is it, is it fair to say that inflation's become the, the key driver of the positioning at the moment? I think um, the best way to think about the portfolio today is really as a three-legged stool. Uh, so the first leg profits from higher inflation um, and inflation expectations over the longer term. And we think that'll happen because investors 
come to appreciate that the underlying economy has become more inflation-prone, driven by things like the return of big government funded by uh, central banks and their infamous magic money trees, but also think about the energy transition, demography, a new Cold War, and so on. And the index-linked bonds and gold that we've just discussed are uh, pretty critical here. The second leg is really positioned for continuing strong economic growth, um, driven in part by all the stimulus still working its way around the system, but also the powerful reopening of economies after COVID shutdowns. And these are going to be very important impulses going into 2022. Now, the fund's cyclical and value equities, that's most of the equity book, are there to profit from this scenario. Um, and that includes higher real rates as financial conditions are tightened in response. And I'm sure we'll come on to that later. But this economic strength and um, greater inflation pressure itself brings risks. Uh, one of those is that central banks let inflation get further out of hand. Um, that would bring us back to the first leg of the portfolio, those inflation protections. But alternatively, they could end up tightening too much and cracking the markets. So the third leg of the stool um, are the specialist derivative protections. Um, they're there to defend against um, other tail risks, including a crash or a deflationary slump, which also remains a risk. And that includes things like our short credit positions, the equity puts, interest rate options, and so on. So um, to recap, three legs, one to profit from higher inflation, uh, one to profit from strong economic growth, and one to protect against the risk of a bust if either scenario uh, is overcooked. Okay. Um, you, you, you've mentioned interest rate swaptions. Um, I think perhaps a lot of... Um you know, particularly private investors will, will, will look at your portfolio and they'll they'll understand some of going on of what's going on, but then they'll they'll see this portion of uh, I think on the fact sheet it's described as seven percent in illiquid strategies and options. Um, you know, how, what, what explain to us how an interest rate swaption works in in layman's terms and why it's advantageous. Effectively, um, you pay a bit of premium as you would uh, for your uh, home insurance policy. And effectively, if interest rates go up, your um, premium returns a multiple of what you've paid out. And the reason you want to own those in the context of our portfolio is that we have very substantial um, exposure in the fixed income market through those uh, long-duration uh, inflation-protected bonds. And they are clearly at risk from an increase in interest rates. And because we are running a hedged portfolio, we want to make sure that they are protected because we expect uh, periods of um, real interest rates, rises, nominal rates going up, um, and possibly inflation expectations uh, coming down. Um, you need to protect them. And it's been a very attractive way to seek that protection because, of course, last year when we um, loaded up on the swaptions, uh, yields were on the floor during the COVID panic. Nobody thought rates were going up in the foreseeable future. Uh, and that gave us a very asymmetric opportunity to buy this valuable protection. And that's why when yields surged at the end of last year and in the first part of this year on the vaccine good news, um, the portfolio was able to keep making progress, even as the pressure was felt on those inflation-linked bonds uh, with yield rises. So they're a really essential hedge. Okay. 
I, I sometimes wonder about the, the, these kinds of options. You, you know, you've explained that they're basically a, a form of insurance. Um, are, are, are they good value, these things? Because, of course, the, the counterparties of these are, are probably global uh, investment banks and, uh, you know, they make money from selling these. Is this an expensive form of protection or is it good value? Well, over the last 18 months, it's been extraordinarily good value if you think about mm. what the portfolio outcome has been um, as a result in part of owning them. Over the longer run, of course, you're right. Uh, as with any insurance... Um, you expect to lose the premium you spend. But the key point is that by owning that insurance, you're able to hold other assets that should be generating a return for you. So you can only consider the value proposition in the context of the whole portfolio uh, and not just on lost premium. Okay, thanks. Um, so you, we, we, we've referenced um, in, inflation-linked bonds. Um, you, you're a big owner of uh, index-linked gilts, uh, as you've said, also, also known as linkers. Uh, these make up more than 15% of the portfolio. Um, just how strong an investment, how strong has that uh, investment been performing since uh, the start of 2020? Uh, the bonds have done very well as real yields have fallen. Um, the reason that they're 15% and not 50% is, as I yeah. said earlier, they are uh, volatile instruments. And you can own 15% of the portfolio to get what we think is enough exposure to our core view, and that is deeper negative real yields over time, and also have enough of the portfolio to protect against a range of other outcomes uh, as we wait for that central story to play out. We've just actually participated in um, the offer of the latest British government um, ultra-long-dated inflation-linked bond, the 2073. Uh, so we've added that to the stable uh, of different maturities we own. Okay. Uh, you, you, you've mentioned break-evens. Um, you, I, I, I've read that UK 10-year break-evens rose above 4% in October, which would be interesting to ask you about. But, but first, firstly, perhaps I can ask you to explain what, what are break-evens? Um, very simply, a break-even is the difference between the nominal yield on a uh, fixed-rate investment, i.e. a bond, and the okay. real yield on the inflation-linked bond um, of, of a similar maturity. Um, and the key point is that if inflation exceeds uh, the break-even, the inflation-linked bond will do better for you uh, than the fixed-rate bond. Okay. And this is also, you know, people also reference this as the market's expectation of inflation, right? Yes, that's exactly right. So typically when people are talking about market expectations of inflation, they are looking at the break-evens. Okay. So we, we've mentioned UK 10-year break-evens rising above 4%. I think some people will hear that and think, is 4% inflation, you know, every year for the next decade? Is that, is that really credible? What do you think? Uh, it's absolutely credible. I mean, it sounds incredible uh, when you consider the environment that we've been living in um, over the last decade or so. Uh, people have been used to perpetually low inflation and relatively low inflation volatility. Um, but you could absolutely see uh, inflation settling at a higher level than we were used to in the post-2008 era. Um, it is worth stressing that what drives the 
uh, inflation-linked bonds is the real yield. So it's not simply the level of inflation. It's uh, the difference between inflation and interest rates. So effectively, as the gap between inflation and interest rates increases, uh, the inflation-linked bonds do better and better. And, of course, conversely. Okay. Uh, Thanks. So... um I, I had a look at what the situation's like in the U.S. So, uh, uh, you know, the, in the U.S., they, they, they have uh, their own equivalent of index skills, uh, TIPS, commonly known as uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, which is, of course, a, a much bigger market and much more widely watched. And U.S. 10-year break-evens are more like 2.5% versus 4.5%, in the U.K. What, what, why is there such a big discount there? Disconnect there, sorry. Uh, I think... In simple terms, the UK has historically been a more inflation-prone economy, uh, and okay. that would explain the, the divergence between the two markets for the most part. Okay, and so you, you wouldn't say that makes it look like tips might be, be better value at the moment? Well, it depends what you think, uh, of, of course, the real outcome will be versus expectations. And um, the tips market is also slightly skewed by uh, for example, the way that Fed purchases have been made. So there are all sorts of technical factors to consider around fixed income markets anyway. But fundamentally, um, the experience of financial repression to erode these gargantuan levels of debt is going to be common to all of the over-indebted advanced economies. Um, and so it's going to be a, a fact of life, I think, for investors wherever they are. OK. OK, thanks. Uh, it's, let, pr- let, it's probably worth adding, Jeremy, just, wh- yeah. just whilst we're on, on that point, that one of the things that the UK offers, mm. really to your question, is ultra-long dated convex exposure to this theme. So there are no 2073 inflation-linked bonds in the United States. There are no 2068 linkers there. So uh, what you're getting in the UK is a uh, very... Um, very long-dated convex position on financial repression. Okay, and that, that, that's something that's, well, particular to the UK versus the US then? Yes, they're the longest dated in the world. Okay, thanks. Um, let, let's move on to talking a bit about uh, shares <laughs> rather than uh, inflation-linked bonds. UK, so uh, UK equities make up nearly half of the uh, roughly 40% uh, it, equity exposure that you, you've got in the portfolio. What, why do you like UK stocks so much at the moment? A lot of people come away from the fact sheet thinking that we've got a sort of um, home bias. Right. Uh, there are a couple of things to say. First, we absolutely don't. Remember, we're unbenchmarked. Um, the main reason we've been interested in the UK is the double discount in recent years. So one discount from all the political noise that has put a lot of international investors uh, and frankly domestic investors as well off the UK market. The second thing is that the sort of stocks typically listed on uh, UK indices are not the sort of stocks that have been in vogue in a very growth-focused post-credit crunch era. Uh, We thought that the political noise would abate Um, and that the sorts of stocks listed on UK markets, so think financial energies, materials, etc., would be much more um, in focus in a world where there's more inflation pressure uh, and faster nominal economic growth. Okay, and so that's why uh, at the top of your equity holdings list, we've got names like Lloyd's, BP. So so these are all companies that you think stand to benefit from the current environment. 
That's right. It's also worth making two additional points. One is that although uh, listed under the UK equity section, remember that, for example, the energy companies are big dollar earners. So yeah. um, most of that business is not taking place in the UK. Um, the second thing is that if you take the banks, for example, remember we're building a portfolio of offsets. So I spoke earlier about the way the swaption book, those interest rate options protect the uh, volatile, long-dated, inflation-protected bonds. Well, we've also traditionally used exposure to UK banks as part of the macro hedge uh, for that part of the portfolio because, of course, um, although the long bonds don't like interest rates going up, uh, the banks certainly do. Okay. Um, and uh, so what, I suppose, look, looking a bit beyond, beyond the UK, I think Japan, Japan's been another region which you've, you've historically said has been extremely cheap. Is that, is that still the case? Japan remains a fantastic story. Uh, it's had a difficult time uh, over the last year or so in terms of narrative amongst investors, and that's mainly because they've um, had a bad time with COVID and they had a slow initial vaccine rollout that put them to the back of the reopening queue. But fundamentally, the story in Japan uh, remains um, what it has been in recent years, which is uh, a warrant on global growth. So if you expect, if you expect the global economy to perform better, uh, Japan's going to be a great place to be with lots of companies in um, specialist value niches in global supply chains. You can buy world-class businesses on knockdown multiples relative to what you'd, uh, for example, pay in the North American market. Um, Japanese equities are majority net cash so they're in a much more resilient position. Um, they've continued in recent years and decades investing in uh, R&D and CapEx. Um, so you've got these fantastic businesses that are well capitalized. They're well positioned in global value chains. There's a great corporate governance uh, reform story and uh, much more focus on returns to shareholders over recent years. Um, and for those reasons and others, um, it remains a, a, a great market. Okay. Well, and that makes it sound like it, not just in the UK then, but in Japan and elsewhere, you, you're very much focused on cyclical stocks, banks, energy companies, and that kind of thing. Is that right? Or are there, are there any other themes in that part of the portfolio? Uh, we do have some cyclicals in Japan. We've got some uh, financial exposure in Japan, for example, but we've also got some uh, multi-year compound stories, uh, most notably in areas like um, digitization in Japan. It's a very under-digitized economy, despite the fact that it's a tech leader in so many respects. We think that's a fantastic long-term story, both in terms of um, government capex in that area, which has really been a priority of uh, this administration and, and the one immediately preceding it. But also there's a long-term Japanese corporate IT capex story there as well. So um, fantastic tailwinds for that part of the equity book. Okay, thanks. Um so the, the, the strong performance of the, the, the fund during the pandemic follows much more pedestrian years in, in 2017, 2018 and 2019, when, when really you just kind of eked out quite small positive returns. That makes me kind of wonder, you know, is, is this a, should investors think of this as a bit of a sort of doomsday fund or is that, is that unfair? Well, our long term uh, compound return is better than equity since the um, start of Ruffer's existence back in the mid nineties. Is that is that better than achieved. the FTSE All Share? Uh, exactly. Sorry. Okay. And that's um, that's been that's been achieved by um, 
avoiding catastrophic loss of capital. And the way we've done that is by making sure we own the right offsets well in advance of the big risks that we see. And that does mean sometimes um, several years of dull or pedestrian performance. Um, The key thing is that if you don't lose a lot of money, you're in a strong position to keep compounding value over the long run. Uh, And as I uh, mentioned earlier, if you take last year, for example, having preserved capital in the crash, we were then able to allocate it into, uh, for example, US tips, um, which had been caught up in the sell-off but looked very attractive, and uh, gold miners, for example, which both did very well afterwards. So it, it provides a lot of optionality and what we're really interested in is that long-term compounding trajectory. Okay, so in other words, you know, what one advantage of this approach is it gives you uh, cash at the bottom of the market, as, as people say, in effect. Exactly right. So we're trying not only to give our investors something which has very low correlation to other major asset classes over the long run, i.e. something genuinely different, and we're achieving that by um, using these um, specialist offsets, for example, at the moment, But crucially, we're hoping that during periods of acute market stress, we're actually providing something that is negatively correlated um, to risk assets. And that's what you saw back in uh, dot-com, back in the credit crunch. And of course, uh, last year, as you mentioned earlier, the fund was flat when equities were down a third. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Last question from me. Um, Discussing all these kinds of different themes and asset classes, you know, uh, uh, makes me think on the one hand, you've, you've got the challenge of, of setting asset allocation and, and the constantly shifting parts there. And then on the other, you know, you've, you've got to pick all the right assets to 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 achieve that. Um, how, how do you how do you and your colleagues balance your time? We start really by working out what the big risks are that um, are out there in the market. And you begin the process of portfolio construction by building in protections against those key risks. So remember, we're an absolute return uh, strategy. Um, Preserving capital in all weathers requires making sure you've always got those key offsets. And then we build around those positions um, other assets that will help the portfolio perform in other conditions. So you asked a moment ago um, whether we're just a doomsday fund. And the answer is emphatically not. And a good example would be the story of last year. So we preserved uh, capital during the original COVID crash by um, using those specialist airbags, the derivative-based protections. But then you had a completely different phase for markets, didn't you? You had a a stimulus-led reflation in the middle of the year and uh, the total return fund um, and the broader rougher strategy Um, fully participated in that. Um, Then you had the vaccine recovery and rotation at the end of the year. That was another different phase of the market where you had a big rotation within equities um, and our value book helped uh, generate returns there. Um, At the start of this year, you had a continuation of that um, Q4 story. So what I'm saying is that the um, portfolio construction has allowed us to build a strategy that performed in several very different market conditions, not just the crash, but also uh, record recovery um, in a very short space of time. So hopefully that gives you a feel yeah. of what we're trying to achieve. Just the way you're talking there about those shifts, you know, you, it sounds like, is that, is that what you, is that the part of the job you enjoy most when the environment start, starts shifting and you have to do something a bit different? 
the great uh, joy of this really is that the market's different every day. And because we're unbenchmarked and multi-asset um, and able to take a very long-term view, uh, we can go anywhere and use anything um, yeah. to protect and grow our, grow our uh, clients' money. So it's, um, it's really a very exciting job. Okay, fantastic. Well, well, thank you very much, Alex. For, for very interesting talking to you and uh, well, certainly wide-ranging wide and, and sounds like you've got lots to keep you busy. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Fantastic. Thank you. And last thing from me, just to say thank you very much uh, to everyone from uh, everyone for listening at home. Please join us again soon for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts.